Hi, I'm CJ. Welcome to the Project Tempest podcast, where we talk with creators about their journeys, struggles, and inspirations. Fabian Nisiesa is a writer of long standing in the comic book industry. With over a thousand credits in a 30 year career, he has worked on Marvel titles such as X Men, X Force, The New Warriors, Cable, Deadpool, and Thunderbolts, and is likely best known as the co creator of Deadpool. His work on DC titles includes Robin, Superman, and the Justice League. More recently, Fabian's debut novel, Suburban Dicks, a mystery wrapped in a comedy, has been called an engrossing and entertaining murder mystery, I agree, and a ceaselessly funny debut novel. Fabian, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, man. Now, 1970, Amazing Spider-Man number one, which is the death of Captain George Stacy, who is the father of Gwen Stacy, who is a major... Um, sorry, who was a major person in the Spider-Man universe. You read this and it had some effect on you. What happened? Oh, it was amazing. Spider-Man 91. Um, what, what, what it really did to me, I think I was um, eight at the time. Um, actually, not even yet. I think I was seven. I hadn't turned eight yet. I was like a month away from turning eight. Uh, what it really did is it, it made me realize that, that storytelling can um, emotionally impact a person when they least expect it. Um, I, I was well aware at that early age that storytelling can entertain you and it can kind of thrill you and it can uh, exasperate you and it can annoy you. Um, but I didn't until, I don't think until that comic I had ever been gut punched kind of emotionally and unexpectedly. Um, nice. because it, it wasn't something that the seven year old mind expected to happen. You know, um, <laughs> that you did not expect this kindly old man who who clearly has always had Peter's best interests at heart, you know, die the way he did saving a kid. Uh, because, you know, we all know anybody who reads comic books, anybody who watches action adventure movies, we all know that rubble is cheap. Uh, <laughs> rubble, <laughs> rubble is uh, omnipresent. It's always there. No one ever gets hurt from rubble. Right. Um, but 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 George Stacy died from rubble you know um and and, and spider-man our hero couldn't save him um and and it said it said mountains about the kind of storytelling that, that stan and, and and john ramita and gil kane and jack kirby and everybody who was working at marvel in the 60s um the, the kind of storytelling that they wanted to try to bring to the table um because that that kind of storytelling was as freeing for them as it was for us as readers uh because for decades they they'd really labored under much tighter restrictions in terms of what they both were allowed to do but also more importantly as i've learned through the years uh they put restrictions on themselves about what they they could do or should do um and i think through the 60s especially the latter part of the 60s um stan stan really felt more freedom uh more power to be able to, to tell, tell stories that were a little more unexpected and hit a little harder. Um, and those stories begat another generation in the early 70s who expanded upon that even further. And, and, and all of that begat the 80s, which, which created mature comics, in quotation marks, because they're rarely ever mature. Um, and I think that all of that, um, all of that 
in many ways, the death of Gwen Stacy, which happened less than two years later, I think, what was is considered so monumental. But in my mind, Jerry Conway, the writer, never gets a chance to kill Gwen Stacy unless Stan had given the okay by killing her father, George Stacy. It's not good to be a Stacy in the Spider-Man universe, I guess. <laughs> um, and, 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 and and it... It, until I thought about it years later, I didn't realize how how integral that story, that one issue was to my thinking about what storytelling can do. Um, nice. and, and ever since then, I, I mean, I've wanted to be a writer since I was like 10, 11 years old. Um, I, I always wanted to tell stories that did two things, entertained you first and foremost, and tried to give you something to think about as the secondary you know, underlying goal. You know, the first goal is always to entertain because that's that's why I'm being paid to write. You know, <laughs> um, and, and and even when I'm not being paid to write, like when I wrote my book, um, I got paid after I wrote it. But while I was writing it, I wasn't being paid to write. The goal was still to write something that would be entertaining. Uh, I think that that's just that's just in my DNA. Uh, I'm not a very um, not a very hoity-toity artsy fartsy kind of writer um I, I i like to write stories that people enjoy reading um the goal nice. is to get them to enjoy themselves and then afterwards have left them hopefully something to think about nice and um so when we were talking about this earlier on and i went and looked up those comics so i i hadn't read that particular arc and just to recap so Obviously, George Stacy, who was Gwen Stacy's father, gets killed. And then almost the entire next issue is the emotional weight of this rumbling through. And Peter is absolutely in turmoil. And he's back and forth. And Gwen also, the, the, the emotional aftershocks of this death, almost the entire issue is really just people reacting, ultimately. Um, and I was really struck when I read it because I'm more used from that era. I'm more used to the comics from maybe five years before that. You're kind of fantastic for things. And just to really find this comic just dwelling over and over again on, you've been hit by a truck. This guy is actually dead. He's not magically coming back next week. And these people are absolutely devastated by what's happened. And at the same time, um, these larger political machinations immediately kick in, which everyone still has to reckon with it's a it's a really fascinating issue of a comic yeah and um and you know reading it as an adult looking back on it is completely different than reading it you know as a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old you know sure. and, and and watching it unfold um i i think i got um every issue or when they originally came out uh amazing spider-man from like uh 90 91 which was the death of george stacy through 100 uh, then I didn't buy it for a while after that, and I ended up getting getting the issues where Gwen Stacy got killed um, because it was Spider Man wasn't a monthly read for me at that point. Uh, by that point, Avengers was becoming my monthly read, but but my brother and I would occasionally get a Spider Man issue if we saw something interesting was happening in it. And I'm pretty sure the cover is what sold us because we didn't know who was going to die inside, but of we saw someone was going to die, so we're like, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> Someone's going to die. Um, so so that's why we got it. Um, so so 
to me, the, the the after effects, the ramifications. I remember that it, it, Gwen Gwen left. She went to London. Peter went after her. I remember all of that stuff uh, happening. Um, but but none of that uh, none of that resonated with me in hindsight um, the way that the actual single issue of the death did. Um, I, I do maybe because I was just a couple years older, but I do recall the aftermath of Gwen's death resonating with me f- more strongly because that 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 went on for several issues you know that sure. that that her death her death affected him in greater ways than 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 you know her father's death did um it's funny to me like the the death of gwen uh, the death of george stacy was a was a a, a a statement on the responsibility of spider-man but the death of gwen stacy was a statement on the, the tragedy of Peter Parker. So it was a bit of a different kind of a, an outcome for the two. Um, but all of that, again, all of that kind of stuff, um, it really fueled, fueled my, my, my thinking in terms of, in terms of what, what you can do with stories, what you can do with, with comic book stories or superhero stories for that matter. Um, it's not that they were revelatory and that, that, that other comics weren't doing lots of interesting things. I mean, characters had died before, George Stacy did, uh, but 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 I may probably hadn't read that comic. I didn't read Doom Patrol, so I didn't know that they killed off the entire team when they canceled their title. Man, talk talk about a tough sales break there. You know? um, <laughs> so, so I wasn't aware of that aspect of it, you know. Um, but but you know, it's seven hitting, getting getting that Spider Man issue. It, it meant. It was kind of in a silo. I'm reading it in a silo to, to a certain extent in comparison to, to the industry as a whole. You know, now, you know, what happens, it so much happens every single month in so many titles that it's almost impossible for any of it to really have any kind of like long-term stakes or even, in my opinion, emotional, uh, an emotional um, reaction because... we're at a point now where we've recycled our stories so many times and recycled characters so many times and there's so many titles that you know it it all becomes it all just becomes a little bit of white noise you know Uh, back then the world existed in a much more isolated siloed environment there wasn't a lot of there wasn't no internet there were no fans talking about it just the letters (laughs) pages and, and your own individual absorption of the content you know my own memory of um, really the 80s when I grew up was reading much more intensively. You would kind of randomly come across something in a secondhand bookstore or in a comic store or something. And that would be the thing that you had to read for a week, a month or whatever. So I, I would reread obsessively. Oh, yeah. All of the yeah. things that I read when I was young, I read four, five, six, ten times, which I don't think is a thing that happens a lot now. No. It's just a really fundamentally different I pattern. Agree. Of engagement, I agree. Right? I, yeah. I, it was the same for me. And we didn't have that much money when i was growing up that we could buy everything not even close and they were expensive they were like 12 15 cents at the time uh then they went up to 20 (laughs) cents and and 35 cents we were going nuts by the time they hit 50 i wanted to explode um so we we only got a few comics a month my brother and i and we shared them Uh, he had some things he bought and i had some things i bought and we would just share them but you end up reading them a million times you know, my original comics are in crappy condition because we read them a million times. I, I think it's in the reading a million times, though, that it, that becomes a bit of a difference in some ways between the person who collects storytelling and the person who who 
considers telling stories. You know, um, the, the person who's collecting storytelling is, is getting it for the, the sequential aspect, the characters, the storylines, and, and, and they're putting it into their collection. Um, the, the person who rereads it a gajillion times, which I don't do now, obviously, and I certainly didn't do into my adulthood, but I certainly did before I got a job at Marvel Comics, which I got at like 24 years old. And, um, and, and and up to that point, I reread anything. I bought a gajillion times because I, 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 as I got older and I had more disposable income, got a part-time job, I'd start buying more comics. But it was never, you know, 20 titles, 30 titles a month. I, you know, I think my max was maybe eight to 10 titles a month that I would get. And that was by the time I was in college and, and, and immediately afterwards, you know. Um, so we, I, my, my comics in the basement are just like, they're just a mess because I read them all. <laughs> I read them all forever. And in the, in that rereading, you're, you're, you're constantly, um, you're constantly picking up new things. Like I remember being 12, 13, 14 years old and, and I'm looking at the storytelling choices that the artists are making, how they're putting foreground, middle ground, background into their panels, how they're using negative space to open up the page, you know, versus, versus cluttering everything where they're taking shortcuts by drawing just a couple pieces of furniture instead of an entire room, all those kinds of things. And, and I, I, I just, it, you just, you become immersed in the details of the necessities of, of, of storytelling by, by doing that, you know, because you're also reading the, the, the balloons you read in a different way. You start to see how many words go into a balloon, how many lines yes. fit a balloon, how many balloons comfortably fit in one panel, how many balloons comfortably fit on one page. You, you really start to digest all of this stuff. And, and it's not like you're being tested on it. So it's not like school schoolwork for me schoolwork was always like i had to learn it for the test and then it seemed like once the test was over it was out of my brain you know <laughs> the the comic related and even book even prose books i reread a lot of prose books back then a, a, a several times um that that was more of an absorption for me like kind of like a fundamental uh, percolation of my dna in in terms of trying to understand how to tell stories nice and so during this whole phase of your life, maybe when you're from maybe about seven to 12, these, these really formative years, um, where are you physically, mentally, emotionally? What, what else is going on in Fabian's life as, as you start this journey? Um, I, I grew up in a very um, lower middle class setting uh, from, from second grade to sixth grade. Uh, I lived in a town in New Jersey called Saraville, New Jersey. That's where John Bon Jovi's from. I lived in an apartment complex. Um, we, I, I, I had a large group of friends, um, both in school and at home, the home friends were different than the school friends. Um, and, and, and we would just do all kinds of things. We played sports, we engaged in shenanigans, shall I say? Um, and, and we had total abject freedom that the children nowadays don't have to explore and to go out and, and, and we had a lot of things in our area that were worth exploring. We lived in a very interesting little pocket that 
gave us access to shopping centers through bike rides or the or deep woods or or like a, an old dump, uh, an old an old an old munitions factory that blew up in the forties, <laughs> uh, an old town that used to be the workers of the munis, munition factory where the whole town, the small little town, not town, just like a couple blocks, got abandoned and overgrown. So we, we had a whole new apartment complex being built right next to the apartment complex we lived in. So as all those, all that land was being cleared and all the frames were starting to go up, we had a world to explore. We had like a playground of of idle tractors and frameworks, skeletal structure, apartment complexes. Um, so we had a lot to do. And, and, and I wasn't I was not in any way, shape, or form a, a homebound child. Um, I, I, I was not th- what you might what might be considered the the stereotypical nerd or the stereotypical jock or the any of those things. I, I, I was a little bit of all of it. You know, I was very active. I played sports, um, but but I also read comics and like like you know science fiction, fantasy, television, and books and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I lived there until sixth grade. The middle of sixth grade, we moved to a house in a, 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 in a, another suburban town, just five minutes away, about about six seven miles away, called Old Bridge, and that's really where I grew up. The, the 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 letters the letters pages in like two or three Marvel books have letters from me from my Old Bridge address. Um, I still live there when I started working at Marvel after college. Um, so I was in Albridge from sixth grade all the way through, uh, a, a few years after graduating college. Um, and, and Albridge is a, is a Jersey suburban town that, that, but we were in the, in the house and a house now rather than apartments. Um, and it was kind of the same thing, a group of friends, which were all the neighborhoods and kids, and we all played sports and we played against other groups of kids from other pockets of the suburban sprawl there. Um, none of my friends read comics. Uh, my brother and I were really the only ones. He met a friend in school who read comics. Uh, I, I really didn't have that. So uh, the comics were a very insular thing for me. Um, the, the, I, I drew almost every single day because my brother and I drew and he's three years older than me, so I, you know, you're following what he does. Uh, and, he, and he drew, so I drew. My, my dad was, um, although my dad was an engineer, he was also an artist. Uh, he did sculpture work, and he also did painting work. Uh, so he, he didn't discourage that in us, let's say. Um, so I drew, and as I got older, the drawing started to become clearly um, in, in, in um, service to the stories I wanted to tell. So I started to do panel-to-panel storytelling on, on large drawing sketch pads. I'd rule out the panels. I'd break down what I wanted the, the thing to be like. And then I could never draw well enough inside each panel. Um, but I realized I could draw well enough to tell the story I was trying to tell. You know, That's- visualize sequences to see how they play out. Um, and that was all through latter high school into college. Um, so, so I always wanted to be a comic book writer and slash always wanted to be a writer. Um, and, and, um, and I just geared myself towards that in college by understanding that you don't graduate college and, and, and answer a classified want ad that says novelist wanted, you know, we want you, we want to hire you to write a book. Really? Okay. Thanks. You know, um, doesn't work that way. So I, I, I want, I, I wanted to get a job in the field that would get my foot in the door to, to have opportunities to write. 
So I, 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 my degree was in, in public relations and advertising communications. And I tried to get a job in advertising first, hope, hoping to get involved in copywriting. Uh, but I, I struggled to get a job out of college in advertising agencies because they required you knowing how to type. Um, and I didn't know how to professionally type. I could type really fast, but I was a, finger, a fast finger typer. Still am to this day, um, although I can use all 10 fingers. Um, and, um, <laughs> and, and, and I got a job at a paperback book publisher, which was Berkeley Publishing, which was the, the soft cover division of Putnam Publishing, which is the hardcover company that just bought my book. Um, so so <laughs> I, I, um, I, I worked for Berkeley Putnam uh, from 83 to 85 in, uh, first in the production department, then as a, in the managing editorial department. Uh, and then I, 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 um, I, I heard about a, a job opening at Marvel, uh, for an assistant position. And I had interviewed at Marvel NTC right out of college, but didn't get either job. So I, I, in 85, I went to interview for this assistant position in the manufacturing department of Marvel book department. And I got that job. And then a few months into that job, there was an opportunity to join the promotion department at Marvel uh, in an assistant level position, which I really wanted to do because I knew that my strength would lie in getting and helping Marvel to advertise their their product. Um, and I thought and I thought that would be a much better track for me. Uh, so I applied for that job and I got it. Ironically enough, the guy who hired me was the guy who got hired instead of me in 1983 because we were both up for the, the job and he had more experience and he was older. So he got it. But then then, you know, three years later, he's hiring me to be his assistant. And we quickly uh, he was getting someone hired above him to be his boss. And all of a sudden we had a little mini department. Um, nice. So I became Marvel's advertising manager and my job was to 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 come up with all the all the house ads, promotional uh, posters that went to the comic book shops, the co-op ads, the sell sheets. So you're, if you were growing up in the 80s, by by 86 onward, anything you saw advertising a Marvel comic is something I was responsible for for getting done. Um, and 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 that's that's that just is the job that got the ball rolling for my ability to start selling my writing too. Nice. It's it's a very familiar theme i think in a, a lot of writers as you say everyone's always looking for the help wanted ad that says we will what we really want is a brilliant writer please apply here and every writer that i've ever known takes some weird twisting path that is not like anyone who came before or after them but it almost always involves showing up and being good and useful at something and finding your way through that territory whatever that territory is um and just being that person who starts to understand the idea that there is an audience and there is creation and there are all these bits in between, like all, that whole weird path, which is not necessarily what, for instance, a creative writing course would want to tell you. Yeah, I look, I I wish 30, 30 plus years later as, as, a, as a professional writer, I wish I had a dollar for every single person who said they wanted to be a writer who didn't have a clue about what needed to be done to become a writer um, <laughs> i would have so many dollars um the, the 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 truth of the matter is is that that even in today's day of of being able to 
to disseminate your content with the touch of a button to thousands of people, uh, depending on, on, on your ability to access thousands of people. Uh, we certainly didn't have that back in the day. Uh, so ultimately, it was getting your foot in, in the door. And if you get your foot in the door of a place that gives you an opportunity to write, then it becomes understanding what you have to do and who you have to do it for in order to get a chance to write. So like, for example, when I was at Berkeley Publishing, I, I, I thought, okay, once I'd been there about a year, year and a half, I said, now, now I'm getting ready. Now I'm getting ready. I, I want to try to write something, but I'm not going to drop a manuscript on an editor's lap out of the blue because I'm a co-worker, you know? So you target what you want to do and how you how you want to do it as the means to get another step up the ladder, not as a means to climb to the top of the ladder, you know? The, the, nowadays especially, but at any point in time, everybody wants to skip the steps, you know? They want it easy and nothing's, nothing's ever easy. And for me, quite honestly, it was as easy as it could possibly be. And, I, and I'll still say that nothing's ever easy. So, uh, you know, when I was at Berkeley, I was, I was starting to prepare um, story pitches for some of their serialized novels that they did. They did monthly a monthly spy series called Nick Carter and two monthly Western series called Gunsmith and Long Arm. So you read these books, you get an idea of the pace and the flow, how they go about doing what they do, what their necessities and requirements are, how many action scenes each book has to have, how many sex scenes each book has to have. And then and then you start pit, coming up with pitch ideas. And the goal was if I can write a few of these for the editors, not only will I make a little extra money because they don't they don't pay they didn't pay much, but they paid like five hundred a manuscript. Okay, I get five hundred bucks a manuscript. You're not making all that much money when you're in entry level publishing. Um, so so five hundred a book is you know some extra pizza, you know. Um, and and, um, and once I show them I can do this. Then I've developed relationships with editors internally. They know that I'm professional. They know that I can string words together. I can form a sentence. I have interesting ideas. I'm professional. I deliver the work on time. I'm easy to work with, et cetera, et cetera. You know? Then I can try to sell them my fantasy novel or my horror novel or whatever. You know? um, and I was just starting to plan those pitches when I heard about the job at Marvel. And, I, and obviously, I went in another direction. But if I'd stayed at Berkeley Publishing, a year, maybe a year to a year and a half later, roughly concurrent with the first the first story I sold at Marvel, I probably would have had my first, you know, gunsmith book out, and my name wouldn't have been on it. It's a pseudonym on the covers, but you know, you're you're they had you know they have three or four different writers who are writing these manuscripts, just churning them out like sausages, um, and that's what I would have done because that was the way to work your way up the ladder. It was the smart way to work your way up the ladder, you know. Um, and and I ended up doing the same thing at Marvel with what's called inventory stories back then, which were completed issues, letter you know penciled, inked, lettered colored uh, all done sitting in a drawer 
and, and they were there as emergency uh, backups for schedule breakdowns. So if your monthly schedule breaks down, you open up the file drawer, you pull out your inventory store, you drop it into the queue, and your book comes out on time. And it was really important back then for the books to come out on time because we still sold a lot of copies on the newsstand. And if you if you missed your rack space on the yeah. newsstand, then you were out for a month. So you didn't want to do that because it could be 70, 80, 100,000 copies that you don't get a chance to sell. Um, so every book needed an inventory story, which meant editors needed always to have an inventory story in the drawer. And, and they'd cite many of those um, editorial offices would cycle through them, especially you start to pay attention. Okay, so the Spider-Man office is publishing three or four titles a month. They're cycling through more inventory stories than, let's say, the X-Men office is. The X-Men office almost never does an inventory story, you know, because they don't. They, they have their pick of the creators who want to work on them necessarily so they can always plan ahead and slot in quality artists like whereas multiple spider-man titles may need that inventory story just because it breaks down and so that so my first sale at marvel was actually a spider-man story um but it never got drawn and it never got published uh, the editor who bought it got fired and the new editor who came in didn't like the story so he didn't want to do it and i got a kill fee for it so that was again an interesting learning experience that that the first printed comic i should have had was should have you know not should have but but could have had was a spider-man story uh but it ended up being a new universe title back then called cyforce because the schedules on all the new universe titles that had just launched less than a year earlier in 86 by by early 87 the schedules were an absolute disaster area so they were all scrambling for inventory stories and nobody wanted to write for those titles at that time so it was perfect fodder for people like me to try to make sales you know to try to sell my stories to editorial so i i, I wrote an, a cyforce inventory story uh, less than a month later i wrote an inventory story for code name spitfire less than a month later i wrote another inventory story for cyforce and, and as that was happening then the new editor who took over the spider-man titles maybe feeling a little guilty that he killed my story combined with seeing i just sold three three issues in just like a month and a half or two asked me if i wanted to do a spider-man inventory story so i pitched him a whole bunch and we got two going and they became web of spider-man issues that that published almost immediately so all of a sudden i had like you know six six credits in a year you know and a monthly gig because they named me the monthly writer for cyforce so it, it 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 seems easy it was fast i'll admit but i won't say it was easy you know because at the end of the day what i realized after the fact because i know there was some grumbling that guy from promotion is selling all these stories i'm an assistant editor and i can't sell a story you know maybe your stories suck maybe there's that you know maybe maybe my stories are better <laughs> maybe my writing is better than yours i didn't i i, I didn't necessarily f figure that out at that time but i did I did fairly soon afterwards, like, you know, pretty quickly. I go, wait a minute. The reason I'm selling a lot of this stuff is because I'm professional. I have interesting yeah. ideas. I'm telling an interesting story. I'm doing the job, right? So, you know, my dialogue is a little crisper than your dialogue. My <laughs> My scene pacing is a little bit faster and smarter than your scene pacing. My conflicts, internal conflicts, were really a must back then. Uh, Jim Shooter, the editor-in-chief, had a rule that every issue had to have a can't-must conflict. Um, Spider-Man sure. says, I, I can't go fight Doc Ock because I have Aunt May's prescription with me and she desperately needs it. 
but I must go fight Doc Ock because he's robbing a bank and threatening people. So what do I do? Can't must conflict. You know, every issue had to have something like that. And I understood that implicitly that, that the editors needed that in order to in order for it to be called shooter proof, Jim shooter proof. So I made sure that every pitch I gave them had their can't must conflict bolded in a yes. single sentence at the end of the pitch. <laughs> can't must. I literally wrote can't slash must conflict colon you know blah 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 and and that way they felt comfortable buying the story because they felt that they were covered you know absolutely Um, so again some of it some of it is is writing skill some of it is is right place at the right time some of it is 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 hard work and some of it is smarts just being smart about how you're trying to sell sell your material and yourself it's really interesting you say. Um, I've, I've I've had a very different path through professional writing than you. But like for instance, at, at one point when I was quite young, I I was doing speech writing for politicians, and that was a real lesson because I'd I'd done all the reading, like I knew all the kind of theory of speeches, and I basically read all the great speeches and that sort of stuff. But as you say, the 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 job in that case is um, there's an event in two hours. We need a, a speech in the form that suits this particular person. And it has to be a good speech, but you also have to navigate the personalities in between you and the final yeah. result. The job is to get the speech ready, whatever that means. If you can do that job consistently and show up and be that person, that's great. Every other consideration beyond that, like we're not looking for the Gettysburg Address if, if, if the Gettysburg Address is going to take you more than two hours to write. Yeah. You've got two hours to prepare the speech. Yeah. That is the, the, the job. And, and you see this over and over again in, I think, fundamentally professional writing as something as a vocation that you do versus any more ethereal idea of I am a writer. Yeah. And I think that gap is one that does get missed a lot oh, yeah, if you well, haven't been through you know, some form of trench warfare. I think I think it, it I think it gets missed a lot on both sides of the coin. I think I think um, in quotation marks amateur writers miss the mark as often as professional writers do. And my attitude is anyone who writes is a writer. Anyone who who makes their living off of their writing and is paid to write is a professional writer. That's all. There's no, you know, there's different requirements and responsibilities uh, that are that are enforced upon a professional writer that may not be enforced upon an uh, an amateur writer. Um, but but conversely, there's certain freedoms. And lack of limitations, and and, and spontaneity, um, and, and pure passion for in certain regards that an amateur writer can bring to to their work that a professional writer can't. They're not able to because of the nature of the job they're being hired to do. You know, um, I, I I I couldn't it, I I wouldn't be allowed to take thirty six pages to tell a, a, an X Men issue. Even if I thought the story would be better because of that 36 pages, because the comic was 22 pages long. Simple as that. That's There's your reality. This is the, the amount of space you have per issue to tell your story, right? So that, 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 those are, those are in, in, in not infringements, but they're conditions of the professional writer's yes. job. The professional writer also has to worry about 
paying rent and mortgage that month because they don't have a job that helps them pay that rent and mortgage. The writing is the job. So you have to make sure that you're making enough money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it, it's, it's all writing, but they are absolutely different kinds of writing, you know, and I don't, I don't, I, I don't have a problem with either one. I, I, I respect both. I, I don't respect when one side places their impositions and or obligations and or requirements on the other side when they try to cross streams. When the amateur says you're a this or a that or a sellout or lack imagination, lack lack, and and then the professional writer says you know you have you don't understand responsibility, you don't understand you know uh, the business, you don't understand you know it, it, you you. you you tend to you tend to learn you tend to you tend to believe in what it is you you are are trained to do in a way or 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 become accustomed to doing i've never been an amateur writer since i was 24 years old i've been a professional writer since i was 24 years old cuz even writing ad copy lines for marvel was professional writing you know before i even just started selling comic book stories so before that, I was an amateur writer because I was really writing for myself, you know, uh, and often with the with the hopes that what I was writing would sell to someone, but not not that often. Um, more often than not, before that, it was just it, it was just me learning how to put words together, as it were, you know. Um, but I, I, until I wrote Suburban Dicks, I don't I I don't think I'd been an amateur writer for 30 something years. <laughs> I wrote a, I wrote a book manuscript as a bit of an amateur writer, you know. I did some spec screenplay stuff, but that was not with the intention of selling almost ever. That I only wrote one co-wrote one screenplay with the intention of trying to sell it. All the other screenplays I ever wrote were really just to understand form and format yeah. and learn form and format. And that, and that's what and that's what I did with, with screenwriting opportunities. Um the 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 book was an amateur, an amateur writing experiment. Uh, I had never sold a novel. I'd never finished a prose book that I'd started. I'd started several and tossed them all away. So I spent a year in between my professional writing, working on an amateur writing project, which ended up becoming a professional sale. But it could nice. just as easily not have become a professional sale. Then I would have had, uh, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of paper that <laughs> was just becoming a doorstop. <laughs> no, and those pages get very psychically heavy over time. It's a, it's a very big thing. Um, it's a very useful transition as well. Um, and I'd love to talk about this. Um, I I read Suburban Dicks, of course. I I really enjoyed it, and we'll talk about the ways in which I enjoyed it. But from that early phase when you were very first starting to write comics all the way through to Suburban Dicks, one of the things that really interests me, and it's a theme that I think comes through in Suburban Dicks, how, how are you aware of being different from other people in, in various ways? Like, um, what makes you not the same as the people around you? And how have you translated that into your, into your work? Oh, that's a, a hideously interesting question. Um, <laughs> I, I think, I think I've been aware of being different than most other people around me since I was a kid, yeah. but not different in how I looked or what I did 
which is the normal nerds issue, you know, um, the, the social stigma, stigmatization and or self social stigmatization that, that a lot of people in creative industries tend to go through. Um, I, I was the very externally, typically normal kid. Um, but I think internally, I always, I always saw stuff a little differently. Um, and I, I questioned, I questioned the, the status quo of our reality a lot more than my friends did. Um, I was not raised religiously, so I did not have faith to fall back on. Um, I, I had faith in myself, which is is considered odd uh, among the religious. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I, I did not have faith in institutions because I, I came of age during the Watergate era here in, in the United States where where there was tremendous skepticism about our leaders as a result of the Vietnam War and Nixon and, and everything that happened there. Um, I, I was an immigrant, but I could pass. Unless you heard my name, you did not think of me as an immigrant. You know, uh, Then if you heard my name, you looked at me a little funny, which I got a lot of from friends' parents and things like that. Um, so I always, I always, my parents spoke with a really heavy accent. So anytime I was in public with them, I always saw the rolling of the eyes or the side stares that, that they would always get when they tried to, to talk to someone in English. Um, and I could speak perfect English. I, ironically, to this day, I use it in reverse because anytime we have workers or anybody uh, doing anything around the house and they're speaking in Spanish, I can understand every single thing they're saying and they don't know it. Um, <laughs> just happened. <laughs> <laughs> just happened to me yesterday. I, 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 I went to, went to the store. Um, I went to go pick up food and it wasn't ready yet. And the, 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 the two people at the counter were talking to each other in Spanish and saying, saying stuff. And I'm just waiting for them to say anything about me. Um, but they weren't. But I understood every single thing they were saying. And they were complaining about other people. They were complaining about their boss. And they're doing it all in Spanish. And I understand everything they're saying. And they don't realize it, you know. Um, so so I, I, I just, even as a kid, I grew up in the apartments. And, and most of my school friends lived in the houses, which were on the other side of a road, Ernston Road in Sarahville. So they were there and I was, I was here. I, and I distinctly felt that, you know, as a kid in elementary school, I, I didn't get invited to certain parties because I was in the apartments kind of a thinking, you know? Um, and, and it, it, not that it ever like, not that it ever forced me into a corner crying or anything like that. It never did. It just sort of was something that, that you absorb and you go, okay, all right. Okay. I, I see. I get it. I, I see how it works a little bit. I didn't go to church. So a lot of my church going friends were always confused by that. Their parents were flabbergasted by that. Um, and, and, and I just think it always gave me a perception of, of, of what, what's the scam? What, what's the game? Yeah, you know, sure. and, and I always, by the time I was in my, in college, I, I labeled myself a cynical optimist, which is what I think I am to this day. I'm turning 60 years old this year and I still think of myself as a cynical optimist. I, I, I have hope, but I'm going to be really sarcastic about the process by which we try to get there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm going to doubt and question every single step of the way on the way nice. towards hope. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's really a thing you say. Sorry, just, just as a, as an aside, um, just a while ago, I I talked with St. Yoshi, who is a Lovecraft scholar, um, and Lovecraft, of course, kind of the ultimate kind of cosmic pessimist. And the thing about St. Yoshi was he has enormous energy and kind of boundless confidence, and he describes himself as a cheerful pessimist. Okay, which which I think ends up in almost exactly That's the same place. I prefer to be a cynical optimist than a than a cheerful <laughs> pessimist, um, because ultimately I, I I do want I do want things to work out well. I do want people to be happy. I do I do want institutions to 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 work properly i you know um i i do want society to get along i I just don't have much trust or faith in the human race to accomplish those things i i I look at our civilization and i don't look at it i don't look at the wonders that it has created i look at the stupidities that it has created i look at the divisions it is it is allowed to continue to foster and build i look at geographic boundaries between countries and languages i just i just see all of that as the stupidest you know, um, stupidest stuff that is so lacking in vision and imagination that we that we not only not only do we perpetuate these things, but we desperately cling to them from from the standpoint of institutions of power, and those institutions of power influence people or or a percentage of people to want to cling to them as well. So as a result, anytime we try to take a step forward, there's too many forces trying to drag you two steps back, you know? And I, I, I felt that way since I was a kid. I really have. And, and my, it's interesting to say, I, I had, um, I think we probably had very different um, sort of backgrounds and upbringings, but I think from an early age, um, I, was, I was aware of and confused by the machinery and I wonder if one of the things that we maybe have in common is if you grow up being in some way a little bit separate and, as you say, kind of always asking what the scam is, being able to see this kind of web of essentially the machinations around you, not necessarily in a negative way, but if you're aware that there are all of these systems operating around you, as you grow older, you do interrogate those systems more than people who, necessar- who don't necessarily see it in the same way. It's just a natural kind of questioning, right? It's like, what the hell is going on here? This is so strange in some very fundamental way. Yeah, yeah. And I, 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 I think I started that as a little kid regarding religion and the Bible and all that sure. stuff. I, because, I, because I wasn't raised that way, I, I, I was always incredibly confused by, 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 the, by, the, by people's desire slash need to believe in something combined with people's tacit acceptance of these words being handed to them that that that's what you're supposed to follow and the words have been written by man and rewritten by man hundreds of times over the course of thousands of years and and half of them in this book are extrapolated from stories from that book and half of those in that book were extrapolated from oral storytelling before that and i even when i was 12 13 years old I, my friends and I, we would have these discussions and i'd just be like i'd be the outsider it's like you know it it, it always um it always boggled my mind that 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 was such a fundamental aspect of our society and our lives and i found it to be such an inconsequential um 
uh, nah, I don't want to say need, uh, just an inconsequential aspect of the civ- the structure of civilization that, that, that we chose to perpetuate. I understand why it was created originally, you know, and I understand why it was perpetuated. I understand how, how people used it for the sake of power and control. I, I don't understand why it would still persist to this day you know and 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 in some ways you know if there's one thing i take some solace in as i get older is that that the numbers in some religions have really drastically declined over the last 20 30 years you know i do think maybe we're on a path where those institutions will become diminished but and when they become diminished i think they're going to be even a greater threat than, than than you know when they were in the majority because because that's when they get more desperate and they get more dangerous you know and there's an interesting question to me of um if we're dealing on on some level with core human needs that are met or well met um what what starts to replace those institutions one of the clear things of the past 10 years is you have this amazing rise of social media that is so wildly destructive and strange and chaotic in so many ways oh it's the new opiate of the masses it's the new religion isn't it It, it, is there always an opiate and in that case do, do we get to choose which opiate is the least harmful is is really the question we have at the moment i I just think that as as a species we are very well suited to just walking off the cliff we are we are we are the the majority of of the human race is wired towards self-destruction um the 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 so uh, you know part of me wants to be the bemused onlooker just watch them i feel like in that in that analogy i feel like i'm the guy sitting in a lawn chair at the edge of the cliff with a with a with a mai tai in his hand watching the people (laughs) go off the cliff you know and just like like i'll see you bye you know it's like i i just i i feel so so impotent in 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 wishing that it would not be so you know and and you know i i try to tell stories that make you as an individual question what is you know and i'm not i'm not i'm not here to give you answers because i don't have answers to give i i I try to write stories i was just scripting uh, my digital comic this afternoon outrage Uh, i'm scripting a new chapter and, and you know it's about it's about questioning uh it's about questioning why we choose the divisions that we choose why we why we choose to be angry at each other and how that benefits the the people who would prefer we be angry with each other as a as a way to avoid us being angry at them you know so so that's you know that that's what the chapter is trying to like work its way through and then try to do it with like kind of really over the top dialogue because it's a really bit of a parody series and 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 you know um it goes broad and 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 i do it with that just like with deadpool or anything else like that you know um suburban dicks is is certainly a little broad but I try to get a lot of messages in there too about uh, you know about the, the abject fear that people have of change and, and how debilitating that is for us as individuals and as a collective whole. This 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 fear of change that so many people have. It's really interesting hearing you express it that way because that's that's that very much explains for me a lot of the flavor and feeling that I got out of Suburban Dick. So 
So just for Audience Suburban Dicks, it's a novel, a very good novel. And at the very start, they're exactly with a beautiful yellow color. <laughs> He's just holding it up to the camera. <laughs> um, at, the, at the very start, there there is a murder in a suburban gas station. And the normal police in the suburb are, are on it badly. And two people who should not be investigating this come to investigate it. And it expands out into a world where the curtain gets pulled back and back and back on the secrets that people have, the feelings that people have about each other that they don't discuss. And I think at the core of it, which we've been talking about this whole time, the sense that almost every single character in that book I found is aware of being different and has been concealing that from the people around them. And the process of the novel is really just curtains being really repeatedly pulled back and pulled back and pulled back on the ugly truths around and beneath us. And, and I found that absolutely fascinating. Um, how did you come to want to write that book and what drove you into it? Well, because you've talked about being the bystander on, on the cliff. It's very hard to jump in no, into novel writing without getting into these spaces, well, the, right into them. The, the, the book is not the result of, of inspiration it's it's the result of of um a long-term lack of perspiration uh the <laughs> the, the 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 book's original um original genesis was 25 years ago and and, and um and it was rooted in my real life at the time which was a a newbie versus a townie situation that um, the newbies lost what they were trying to have done at the political level, the town council level. Um, I, I lived in a, in a new, new, new development, a new construction house in the early 90s uh, that had a gun club on the other side of a pond. Um, the house in the book that Andy Stern lives in is is my house from that time period way back then. I don't I haven't lived there since um, 2001, but that that's the house I lived in. Um, and, and we tried to get them. We tried to ban the outdoor shooting for the gun range, not the indoor shooting, but the outdoor shooting because they were being nice enough to occasionally send bullets our way. Um, and I mean that literally, like they would occasionally miss the berms with their pistol shoot, pistol shooting. And you'd find a bullet on your driveway or a bullet hit my neighbor's house. I found a bullet on my landscape bed when the houses were first being built. My house wasn't even built yet. A bullet went through where my property would have been and hit a house being that was already built and went into their dining room, uh, hutch, you know, so we thought, okay, yes, they've been here 50 years, but, you know, there's houses here now. So how about we stop letting them shoot outdoors? Um, not indoors, because if the old townies want to go in there and shoot indoors, that's fine. Um, and we lost in the town council, and that was it. And 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 I, I my, my version of revenge is coming up with a story that, 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 um, that, that, 
fulfills all the fantasies I would have about the gun club being closed. And it evolved tremendously from that initial impetus, but that was the initial impetus. And that was 1995. And I had the whole idea lock, stock, and barrel. The reason that that the character of Andy Stern is 33 and pregnant with her fourth kid is because at the time I had that idea, myself, my wife, and all our friends, we were all having our, our kids at that time. We were all moving into the new houses. We all had the mortgages. All that stuff was all happening for us at that time. Um, uh, Kenny was reflective of my fears that I achieved a, a, a tremendous level of success, at least quantitatively as a comic book writer. And, and I was very, very worried that qualitatively it, it would be the end for me. Like, what, what if there's nothing next? So I had the idea of uh, of a reporter who had tremendous success when he was younger, in this case, you know, when he was in college, and now is facing being an abject failure. So that was my own insecurities projected out onto the, the book and the characters. So I, I really had the, the whole idea lock, stock, and, and barrel back then because – in order to discredit the gun club, they needed to be hiding something that happened years earlier that would have put the gabosh on them in today's day and age. So it was going to be someone gets killed and it's because they were hiding a secret for someone else who got killed decades earlier. Um, and that was it. So there's your story right there. That was 1995. Um, and it evolved since then. My town evolved, which helped me make the make the writing and the story evolve too. Um, the impetus really shifted from a bunch of old men and a gun club and shifted to the township and the police. Um, and it's not really fair to the township or the police because today's current current regimes are not like that, but <laughs> the regime that existed in 1995 was. Um, so so, so um, that's why I have the caveat in the author's notes that it's this is fiction. Please do not egg my house or, or give me a speeding ticket because I live in the town I'm writing about. Um, and, and, and all of the – all of the aspects of, of the, the, the relationships between people of different cultures, the aspects of Caucasian yeah. fear of demographic change, all of that is part and parcel to the evolution of the town I live in because it was 30% Asian back in the mid 90s and now it's like 65% Asian or something like that now you know and and I was the I was the soccer coach driving seven kids in a minivan to a, a travel soccer game and all seven of those kids had slightly different cultural backgrounds you know and it was very interesting to have that kind of a melting pot uh, and live in that kind of a melting pot cauldron. Um, and, and I just little by little just applied things I've seen, things I've heard, things friends have said, neighbors have said, and just try to, you know, mix it all into the fiction. I mean, it, it is a work of fiction. It is not, you know, a documentary of, of the town or anything like that. It, it's a work of fiction that I try to color with um, aspects of reality and perceptions that I have of what that person may be thinking. You know, yeah, it nice. may not be fair and it may not be accurate. The, the 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 Caucasian policemen may not be thinking that, but for the sake of my fiction, it helps me to have the Caucasian policemen thinking that. You know what I mean? So that 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 that's kind of how I approached it. It was the real thing. With, um... 
because before I read it and it had been described as a satire and I I didn't really oh, was it really I was interested yeah, 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 this is the thing. I, I, I was interested to see, like, how does a novel-length satire work in, in, in this thing? And then I was reading it, it, it didn't feel like satire at all to me because so many of the chapters, they, they hinge around these very honest conversations or these very upfront internal dialogues, and you have people talking to each other either about their feelings and the things that happen to them or, especially in the case of the two main characters, really being pretty honest with themselves and each other about what it's like to feel like a failure which is one of the overwhelming things that that both of them feel that they've kind of come down from some kind of height. And that emotional honesty that goes right through it, it's quite startling. And that's the thing that, to, to me, was was really pushing me forward through the novel. I was I was fascinated by the town, but just the, the, the straight-up honesty of a whole bunch of it. There's this awesome higher wire act where, on a kind of line-by-line basis, you are tossing off wonderful one-liners and cool little bits, and, and you're like, oh, this guy knows how to write. But it's pushing through this just straight up honesty of these are the things that we don't often say to each other or to ourselves. Oh, I appreciate and, and that. that. Um, just, yeah, yeah. I just you know what I um, I I know I know I know I felt it during the writing process, and it was certainly a process because I, I had a lot of work to do on that thing to make it better after I first wrote it. Um, and, and to of learn course, writing as is I was going right? yeah. along too. Yeah, when that not so much rewriting as cutting. I had to cut a lot. I yeah. overwrote by a lot, and I mean a lot, and um, and I had to have professional help, and and both in terms of an editor I hired, and then the the agents who agreed to represent it, but had had suggestions for 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 cuts and some changes, which I I listened to and agreed on agreed to and, and made changes and cuts. Then the editor who purchased it had more cuts that they wanted to make so so you know from my original manuscript i cut out over 150 pages but but probably 120 of that was just flotsam just bad repetitious work on my part because i was learning i was learning how to prose write because i had never gone that far before i had gotten as far as two two 275 pages of a gambit novel back in like 2001 or 2000 um and then the license (laughs) got pulled from the publisher by Marvel, so all the books that were in progress got killed, including that book. And I was I was over I was more than halfway through the manuscript at that point um, for the Gambit novel, but I never wanted to finish it, and I haven't looked at it in twenty years because I don't think I'd be happy with the writing. Um, so so I was learning as I was going along. Um, I. I um, I, I lost a thread of the question. <laughs> I lost a thread of where right, I was. Well, so, and I'm actually really interested in 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 how you found the. The transition from the comics to prose. One thing I really noticed oh, yeah. was that each chapter was was really beautifully topped and tailed. Yeah, and um, I'll, let me jump like to that. Like, I'll get back to that yeah, in yeah. a second, Kyle. But I, I remembered the thread, which was the honesty of the voice and the honesty. Yeah. I, I, as I was writing, I, I felt a liberation to be working on my own thing, my own way, yes. at my own pace, however I wanted to, which I really haven't had in my entire career. Um, and, and I, I, the one thing I made a determination was that I was going to try to be truthful to who I thought these characters were, even though being truthful to them makes them less likable, not more likable. Um, I, I didn't, I, I, I find charming arrogance to be likable. I have to, because I, 
try to be charmingly <laughs> arrogant. Um, and if, if, I, if, if I think it's not working, I'm in big trouble because I, I, I want to delude myself into thinking that it is working. Um, so so I, I wanted, I, I wanted um, honest recriminations on their, on their parts. Re- really, they're, 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 one's turning 30 and one's 33, 34, and that's not really fair to their ages that I, I, I placed the 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 their self evaluations to the level that I did. It's really the recriminations that are much more like what someone in their forties or even fifties yeah. might have. But I because I had the idea way back when when I was in my thirties, I already had the idea that there was recriminations in that. That was also born of the honest truth of of relationships in my life at the time. One of the biggest things that we were all dealing with were our our highly educated, highly competent, highly successful wives having to make choices about whether they were going to go back to work or be homemakers in quotation marks. And all of our wives had to do that. All of our wives had to be placed in those situations. Um, and and I wanted, I wanted an honest evaluation of a person who made that decision or had that decision kind of made for her and 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 now 10 years later she she wasn't happy about those choices you know yeah. um and, and it's because i was on, in essence i was i was forecasting i was projecting w- w- how many of our wives are going to regret the choices <laughs> 10 years or 15 years down the road that, yeah. that they didn't go back to work you know um and it's 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 quite savage so this is andy who is one of the two main characters and it's it's quite savage, especially early on. You have this this really kind of um, deeply accurate portrayal of what it's like to be dragging your kids around. But she's she's deeply aware, or or feels that she is she is far more capable than her husband, and and this colors a huge amount of her early perspective in the novel. It's it's really quite brutal. It's 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 not and she it's it's not an easy set of choices she's made and she's not necessarily happy with the consequences and she's just as equally responsible as anything and um if you think it's brutal in the first book wait till you read the second book Um, (laughs) it's really brutal in the second book um and 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 it's because i i um i saw her story um i saw her story as a three-step process the first book is really just step one the step one is the 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 tacit acceptance that that she should be this you know she should be solving crimes because that's who she is you know yeah everything else is either an encumbrance or a, or a rap or you know a, a salve or a bomb over the reality of this is who I should be and she needed to come to terms with that and she does by the end of the first book the second book is more along the lines of this is what I have to do in order to be able to become who I should be and if we get a third book and more after that it's the process of being being that having ha- having given yourself the opportunity to be that person um and she's not she's not there yet by the end of the first book she's not even there yet technically by the end of the second book but if we get it was a two-book contract so i can't say by the end of the third book because i don't know if there'll be a third book yet um <laughs> it, by the end of the third book she is there 
because she she's liberated herself from the the constraints that prevent her from being who she should be and combine that with she has learned how to be who she should be with the the responsibilities that she has brought into this world meaning her children you know um yeah so so that's the path that i wanted to take with her um and 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 have because the the good thing about like waiting 25 years to have the courage and the skill set to write the book is that i thought about the characters a lot so i really really you know i really have i really have them them well thought through and the realities of my life and my children and my friends children's uh, and they're growing up, going through, you know, they're all out of college now, all me, my, my kids and my friends' kids and all that stuff. So it really helps chart the path for the kids as well, you know, because now I have other people's and my own kids' paths that I can cherry pick and choose from as to as to what works for different characters, you know. Um, so nice. so that those, those 25 years are, are – were, were, um, were well worth it in in a lot of ways. My my drawback will be when I'm 80 and I've only gotten the right 10 books. But <laughs> but 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 um in the meantime, I think it's been to the benefit of of the writing, uh, the benefit of the characters, the benefit of the stories, everything. There's that that famous thing you get when you're trying to write the pilot episode of a TV show, and you have to do so much heavy lifting to discover and articulate the characters that it's almost impossible for it to be a good story. And I think one of the feelings that I got from Suburban Dicks was, as you say, it just kind of rolls straight into, we just know these characters already. And it feels like you're not having to discover them as you write it. Because as you say, you've had 25 years to know these people. And so there's this really elegant sense early on of, um, in a very good way, the book is not doing a whole lot of early heavy lifting where the writer is kind of figuring out their world. You just kind of steamroll right past that and we're just into being around these people and we know them which I thought was, um, um, it, 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 it moves at a wonderful clip in a really good way. I appreciate that. I, I think I cheated a bit by setting it in the, the area I've lived in for 30 years, you know, um, oh, because that's the, the tool, right? Yeah, that's yeah, what you've got. The, the, cheat, the cheat is that I, I know it so well, I can shortcut the communication of it. You know, um, I, I can make it lived in. The, the fact that she is living in the house that I lived in from 93 to 2001 and Kenny grew up in the house that I lived in from 2001 to 2014 <laughs> that that simplifies my navigation of the kitchen to the family room to the sunroom to the deck outside to the pond in the backyard it it it, it simplifies how I already have to process it on the page, which hopefully simplifies how I am able to present it yeah. to you. I don't need to write three pages describing a room in a hallway in a, because I don't need to because I already know it. you know. <laughs> and you don't need no, it absolutely. because who needs to know all the details of a room yeah. unless it's actually pertinent to the story or the character, you know? Exactly. There's, um, there's a wonderful advantage that I always thought that the crime writer um, – what's his name, James Elroy always oh. had, especially when he was writing about Los Angeles in the 1950s. There's a certain type of completely broken man that James Elroy understands so well that he rolls right into these absolutely shambolic men who are in love with a redhead, which is basically just James Elroy and his mother. Yeah. And you always feel after the first page that you've been in this person's life forever. You yeah. can smell yeah. the whiskey type thing. It's that yeah. same, that, yeah, that yeah. same comfort a, level. Yeah, you can smell their clothes. You know, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you know, yes. He, he writes... 
I was a huge Elroy fan for a while. I kind of gravitated a little away from him in the last 15 years, but, but, um, I've, I've said in interviews before, one of the, one of the things that kept me from writing prose is I was always so unhappy with what I wrote and I would just chuck it um, anytime I tried. And, and one of my phases was trying to be a poor man's James Elroy. And trust me, that's an ugly, ugly place to be um, because the, the, the idiosyncratic nature of his writing is yeah. so personal to him that trying to trying to feel that voice is ludicrous and and i trust me i wrote some prose that was ludicrous because it, it was me thinking that i needed to write like an author or something you know he he's so compelling he's he's a little bit like hunter thompson obviously they're very different style wise but they both have the style that when you first read it is is so overwhelming that you end up basically wandering around imitating them for a while until you can overcome them yeah and with james elroy it's it's this incredibly telegraphic style where he removes absolutely everything that he can from every sentence so it just kind of it's it's this absolute machine gun thing and with hunter thompson of course it was the whole persona but you have a lot of people um also very much like hemingway but a lot of people especially male writers who are not quite fully formed who walk around as imitations of those writers yeah. and it's just part of the challenge to just get past it. yeah right? you know what i think that what helped me get past it is i got past his books because i felt that he i felt he sunk too far into that style yeah. that it actually lost me and this was a while ago i've i've not I, he's written at least at least three to five books that 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 i have not followed since the you know mid aughts um and and it's because it and and i'm probably i probably should give him a look i probably should check him out um in hindsight because i might have read too much of his work in too close an amount of time which really really lost me i wasn't as familiar with him until i saw la confidential and then i wanted to read everything yeah. he'd written and and having read everything he'd written up to that point was probably a mistake because it, you, you you become a little it's quicksand it sucks you in a little too much yes. and it started to lose me because i thought it was i thought it was almost becoming a parody of itself which may not be fair was, to was, him you know uh but but it's how i felt it as a reader you know I was I was literally thinking of that phrase and it's and it's the great danger of a lot of stylists right they just end up imitating themselves in this really weird way and it's very circular um it's a really good it's transition and I just want to come back to the thing we were talking about before um um in terms of the mechanical writing how did you find the transition from comics to prose I, I was I was saying earlier to me each of your chapters is beautifully topped and tailed and it feels almost almost like you're driving through a kind of 20 page 22 page issue in each chapter but how did you find that shift I I um because I I I tried and failed at writing prose often enough that by the time I started this, I had no illusions and no expectations. I just I I I just started to write a little bit leaner, cleaner, and simpler. A less 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 attempt, like I said before in quotation marks, less attempts at being an author and just and just writing. Um, writing as succinctly as I could with the the narrative voice I demanded it to have because the narrative voice is the cynical optimist in, 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 you know impression of the world you know and and seeing the characters that way too one of the reasons for the honesty you cite in the characters is because I think that the narrative voice is also honest about the characters and, and about all the characters for the most part unless it's purposefully hiding something from you you know um and it's it's honest about the world that exists in um the the so that came to me as i was 
chugging along. I think by page 40 or 50, um, I'd, I'd sent the first three chapters out to a couple people to read, and I got good response back from them, which both surprised me and scared me because it meant I had to keep going. Um, but by page 50, I said to myself, this isn't that bad. Um, and by page 100, I said to myself, this isn't that bad, you know, <laughs> just that different inflection, like, like I'm convincing myself, whereas first I was surprised that it's not that bad, then I was convincing myself that it really isn't that bad. And, and by the time I got to page like 200 or so, I'm like, this is okay, this is all right, this is, whether someone else likes it or not, I have no control over, but I am satisfied with this as it's chugging yes. along, which was 90% of the battle for me to begin with writing prose, you know? Um, what I, I think that the comic writing helped me in a completely subconscious way that I didn't even realize until I've had more and more of these kinds of great conversations about the writing. Because I don't talk to anybody about my writing. I don't have, I don't, I have writer friends, but I don't talk to them about writing. I have social friends who we never talk about writing. My wife doesn't want to talk to me about anything. So why should we want to talk to me about writing? I, I, um, I, I, I really work in a bit of a cocoon, you know, I've my, in my 30 years, the majority of the interaction I've had about my writing has either come from an editor or has come from the readers who are reading the finished work. It's never been about yeah, right. process. Um, so I, I subconsciously channeled 30 years of a skill set at understanding how to pace my storytelling for the requirements of an action-driven 20 or 22 page monthly format and i think i didn't even necessarily purposefully do it it just sort of was that my chapter breaks were going to be interesting interesting and interesting cliffhangers which weren't necessarily going to be physical threats or ne not necessarily going to be action beats not but they were going to be um they were going to be plot cliffhangers or character cliffhangers you know um and and almost all the chapters fell smoothly that way so I had all my chapters on index cards, and I, I, I had rough details, but often I didn't have a, strong, a comfortable beginning or a comfortable end to my chapter. I found it as I was going along. And, and it also came in the editing, too, because I know for a fact that out of 45 or 50 chapters, I think that there were probably a good 10 or 15 of them where in the rewrites I, I clipped a paragraph or two off because I go, that's the better ending. That's the that that line is the better note. Um, and and, and uh, I I I guess I can say comfortably that it confidently that that it worked because a lot of the response I've gotten from pure readers has been. Uh, it was one of those books where I always say, okay, just one more chapter before I turn the light out, you know? And that's a great thing to hear. 
I read the hardcover a few weeks ago, and it's the first time I'd looked at it in a few months. I think the last set of galleys I looked at might have been in April. Um, so I just read the book uh, as in a hardcover form, not on, not on my laptop. Um, I read it in bed the way I would normally read a book. Um, and, and I found myself a few times going, all right, just one more chapter. And I realized like a little kid, I was so giddy. I was like, wait a minute, I just, I just did I just did the one more chapter bit. That's great. <laughs> if I want to read one more chapter of my own book, that's got to be a good sign, doesn't it? I'm not that crazy. I'm not that self-indulgent. Um, and 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 I and that was good. I liked it. I also liked it when I reread it. There's always a moment where I forgot I wrote something uh, because I, I tend to be very forgetful. I just tend to like it just goes right out of my head. Um, and there's some lines there that I you know no matter how many times I've read the book now, and I've read the book freaking 15 times at least front to back. Um, there's still occasionally that line that pops up where I forgot that that was where it was going to be, or I forgot even that I wrote it that way. And I'm like, oh, that was a good line. Okay, that was funny. You know, so. Um, I was just doing the line edits on the second book. Um, the, my editor had sent back his line edits, and then I had to uh, agree, approve all of them or tweak his. Uh, and I also added a lot of my own. I actually ended up tweaking about about 5,000 times more than he did. Um, so so um, I, I was reading the second book, and there's a couple moments where there were, there were scenes that I really hoped – would 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 land and, and i'm reading it now and i hadn't looked at it in five six weeks before he delivered the line edits and i'm reading those scenes i'm going okay yeah they landed that's good that's all right i'm okay with it i'm glad you know it's like I <laughs> there was always the writers in comics who love to read their own dialogue out loud for people yeah. i was never one of those writers i i i was never i i'm very uncomfortable at the thought of standing in front of people and, and reading a chapter of my book uh, you know so Someone asked me to do that in one of the podcasts. I'm like, yeah, really? No, I don't. I don't. I really don't feel comfortable <laughs> doing that. I'm supposed to do a, a local appearance at a, at a club in Princeton in December, and one of the things they said is to read an excerpt from your book. I'm like, in Princeton at the Nassau Club? I mean, what, am I even going to be able to find a passage that doesn't have an f bomb in it? What am I going to do? You know, I was like, I just, I, I'm very <laughs> uncomfortable hearing my own work uh, spoken out loud, much less by me. Um, when they contractually, I had the right to to read the audio book if I wanted to, and I thought, oh, yeah. I I don't want to hear myself talk for an hour. How? Why would I want to subject somebody to five hours of this voice? I'm like, no, no, hire a good <laughs> professional to do it, please. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a, that's an excellent place to get to as a writer, though, where where you're not just kind of shielding your eyes and and never reading your book and. You, and you get to 50 years after you've written the first book, and you're like, oh, maybe I should go back to that thing now. That's a, that's a wonderful space to be in. I, I know a bunch of writers who literally never read anything after they, they've finished doing it. Yeah, and because I, they just I, don't want I to go back that. into that door. I get that. There, I, I'm, I'm a little weird that way. I'm not, I'm not an absolutist one way or the other. I mean, there's some comics I've written that I've not reread in 25, 30 years. And there's other comics I've written that I have reread them. Um, after a certain amount of time has gone by it's been a little bit of both um i i um i i tend to be fair to myself about what i see as bad and um and 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 be satisfied and happy with what i see as good um comics especially because it's such a weird thing they're they're you, you got to churn the work out so quickly. There's so little opportunity for thought, consideration, and 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 slowing down. Um, that that I I I accept 
and respect the monthly sausage grinding nature of it. So I, I'm more willing to forgive myself because I can reread something I nice. wrote 30 years ago and go, well, yeah, I remember how late the art was, how frenzied the editors were, how backed up the bullpen was with production needs. You know, so so I had a script 14 pages overnight. I so so I, I I tend to be a little more forgiving of myself in 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 that capacity uh, because I understand the production needs. There's no excuse with the book though because it takes for freaking ever to get a book out. It, books are so <laughs> slow. I can't believe it after 30 years in comics how slow books on, are. You know, uh, they move on 19th century time. It, in they every they sense, really I do. Think. It's yeah. horse and carriage time. Yeah. We'll yeah. we'll be delivering the manuscript by Pony Express in the next six months. <laughs> You're like, oh, come on. Let's go already. <laughs> My second book's not going to come out till next summer, oh. and I'm like, "Come on, already! Why don't? Why isn't that coming out in December? Let's go." <laughs> <laughs> the um, the one genre that I, I really respected around the transition to digital was, for for the most part, the romance industry jumped into digital and were like, "We are going to make books in the 21st century." And I think the, all of the rest of publishing, to a huge extent, is still kind of thinking about these horses and these buggies, and maybe yeah. we should get off the carriage eventually. But yeah, yeah, no, they are. <laughs> Look, I, I proposed a whole bunch of different things because I, I don't, I don't write stories. I work in story worlds. It might sound pretentious, but it's really yeah. been the totality of my career. Whether it's the Marvel universe or the DC universe, working on Hollywood films, doing story world development for franchises, uh, things I've edited it have been parts of larger story franchises like Barbie or Ren and Stimpy. Whatever, everything has always been a part of a larger story world. So I don't approach anything without thinking that way. So I'm, you know, I, 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 I got the, the suburban dicks graphic novels that I want to do, which are prequels, you know, I got the, I got the, the spinoff middle grade reader book I want to do with Ruth, you know, her, her oldest daughter in a couple of years. I, I, I want to do all of these things. I got excerpts and, and, and clips and interviews I want to do that they can drop digitally, but the book publishers really don't have the mechanisms to do any of this kind of stuff i got a multi-platform brain and and the book publishers really work on a single platform track you know and and i get it and if they do it well good because then it's a it's a well operating train on that track but my brain is thinking on six tracks at the same time usually it's it's and it's um it's a different discussion for another day, but it's absolutely not the direction the world is going in. Um, on that note, and and maybe as my final question, yeah, Colin, I'm sorry, it, I appreciate it. it. I don't want to interrupt you, but I agree with you a thousand percent. It's not the way the world is going, but books are doing better right now than they have been in many, many years. <laughs> so they're yeah. they're doing something I right. I think reading never. Yeah, I I think reading never goes away. I, I think aspects of that industry have the potential to jump forward. And 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 so if you basically if we imagine someone young whatever age and they're a they're aware that they're a little bit different from the people around them and b they want to make stuff and they see this emerging universe of essentially story worlds metaverses call it what you will but someone at this point who is young and starting out the career they want to make stuff what would you say to them make it i mean honestly That's make it <laughs> i I, yeah. I think that depending on the nature of what it is you want to make if it's graphics graphic storytelling then if you're not an artist you have to have an artist etc cetera, etc cetera. but um you, you have you have the electronic and digital capabilities at your fingertips now to make art and disseminate that art in ways that never existed 
even 20 years ago you know and, and and if you want to make something it doesn't matter if you're making it for yourself if you're making it for 10 friends or if you're making it for a hundred people in a in a group uh, message board or whatever or if you're putting it out there wide out on the internet um, you, you you have no excuse not to make something other than the excuse to not make it you know, and, and if you want to create, you should just create. And if you want to create for professional gain, the only way to do that is by creating first and, and hoping to build a body of work that draws the attention of someone that can turn it into a professional gain for you. So no matter what, either way, you have to create it. So you can't talk about creating it. The, 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 ultimately, the, one, the ones who rise to the top, as it were, um, the ones who get looked at, the ones who get read are only the ones who do, <laughs> you know, the, the ones who don't never do. And all they do is complain about never getting the chance to be looked at and read. So you have to do it. And, and, and I'm an old man now and I'm looking back through hindsight. It's easy for me to say that, but I know my personality would have driven me to find ways to create even within the context of how it was done 30 years ago or 25 years ago, you know, um, because I know that as I got older, I had an innate drive to have others read what I was writing or wanted to write. I, I wanted to write things that would entertain people, whatever platform that may be. It could have been books and it ended up being comic books. Um, and since then, it's been a, a gajillion different platforms. But it, it, the goal is to do something that, that others can enjoy or others can be inspired by or others can be angered by or others can be and uh, confused by or others can be sad about whatever whatever it is that the goal of of your creative storytelling is the only way to achieve that intent that goal is by having other people look at it and elicit those emotions and those reactions out of them that you wanted your fiction to elicit so you have to do it in order in order to in order to get that reaction you have to put it out there for it to be reacted to that is, that is wonderful advice that i think cuts right to the heart of get off your asses um, all of you but don't yeah, don't, write, exactly. don't write competing mystery novels that are going to drive me out of business <laughs> bastards the suburban satire mystery novel is is taken for now absolutely um fabian Nisiesa, where can people find you and suburban dicks you can go to my author website i have an author website now don't you know uh it is fabian and you can reach me through that or you can go on twitter uh at fabian Nisiesa is always an incredibly easy way to reach me uh, my dms are open but any any email contact uh, from my website comes through to me so i'll see that too uh, sign up for my newsletter if you want. Uh, I'm going to have a second one coming out soon. The first one is really kind of the journey of the book. Uh, the second one's going to be uh, tips and advice on formatting for comic books. Brilliant. Thank you so much, sir. My pleasure, Colin. Thank you. Tempest Bay wouldn't be possible without the amazing support of everyone involved, including you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and consider leaving a review. This helps us out a lot. For more, please go to projecttempest.net for access to the videos, art, 
podcast, award-winning stories, and much more. That's projecttempest.net. See you next time in Tempest Bay.